Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. This is Molly. And I'm Kristen. Kristen, important question. Okay. Do you ever plan to run for any sort of public office? Well, I mean, I am prepping my campaign for uh, President 2012. Mm. Uh, I don't know if you're going to be old enough by 2012. It's a little something called Photoshop, Molly. (laughs) Come in handy. The reason I ask is sometimes I think about uh, things we've said on this podcast and how if we ever did run for public office, our our enemies would just have so much <laughs> ammunition. You would have an arsenal of just clips of us saying things about penises and breasts and menstruation, and I just don't know how long we'd last. So, <laughs> and I and I can think of an example of a woman who probably did not realize that she would be put into a higher position, ah. and probably had some words come back to bite her. In the behind. Yeah, we are talking about the newest chief justice on the Supreme Court, Sonia Sotomayor. Mm-hmm. And there was this huge controversy about the speech that she delivered at the law school at the University of California at Berkeley in 2001, um, which was usually condensed down in sound bites to the uh, wise Latina can make a better decision than... A white man. Mm-hmm. And she was blasting the media for making this statement. Uh, conservatives used it as their number one argument uh, that she would be an activist judge and um, wasn't going to judge fairly. But I thought that we should put a little context to this quote because we're answering the question, does a woman make a better judge? Mm-hmm. I thought that this would be a good bouncing off point um, because the the actual quote is, I would hope that a wise Latina woman with the richness of her experiences would more often than not reach a better conclusion than a white male who hasn't lived that life. And what she's saying is that as a Latina woman, she is bringing um, a unique personal perspective to the cases that she would hear. But I, I think it's important to note that right after that in the speech, she said, let us not forget that wise men like Oliver Wendell Holmes and Justice Cardozo voted on cases which upheld both sex and race discrimination in our society. And until to- 1972, no Supreme Court case has ever upheld the claim of a woman in gender discrimination case. So she was kind of saying that, you know, she has a unique personal experience, but that isn't to discredit um, the work of other prominent male judges as well. So then this brings up the whole question um, that a lot of uh, bloggers and magazines and other news sources were discussing of whether or not, um, in fact, women do make better judges. Or can we come to better decisions than men? And not only do they make better judges, but does the Supreme Court need more of them? Yeah, because at the time that she was uh, put on the bench, the only other female sitting on the Supreme Court was Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Who said she was lonely up there. <laughs> yeah, she was really excited when, when Sotomayor was uh, was nominated. So let's talk first about whether there are better judges, because if, if a woman's a good judge, then she should be up for you know consideration for a Supreme Court position and not subject to, as Sotomayor was, some claims that this was just affirmative action, just putting a woman on for the mm-hmm. sake of putting a woman on the on the court. Right. Um, and I think one of the best places to, to look for the answer is a paper published in 2008. This was published by the Social Science Research Network. And it was from a team of researchers from, uh, from various 
universities. Um, now, the first thing that they that they found, which does not necessarily bode, bode well for uh, women women judging um, as adequately or better than men, they said that on average, and this is from an op-ed they wrote in Slate, and they said on average female judges are less qualified based on traditional metrics than male judges. They have attended lower-ranked colleges and lower-ranked law schools. They're less likely to have had judicial clerkships, and they have less experience in private practice before becoming judges. So that's one metric that these authors came up with for their slate piece, was just sort of traditional qualifications. But then they also looked at three other pretty interesting things, productivity, influence, and independence. Productivity being how many opinions the judges wrote, how frequently the other judges relied on their opinions, how often they were cited, that would be influence, and independence being how often the judges dissented from opinions written by judges who belong to the same political party. And this was where it really started to even out the differences between the male and the female judges. Female judges were cited just as often as male judges. They write as many opinions and they are just as, and they are just as likely to dissent and to dissent from opinions written by judges who belong to their party. So the findings are that once they get on the bench, they are not, you know, hindered by a lack of opportunity in their earlier years. Mm-hmm. They are being just as effective as these male judges on the bench. Now, then the paper went on to talk about, do they make different decisions? Yeah, and, and they did this by um, matching up methods to 13 different areas of laws, and they only found one area of law that seemed to indicate that women might, in fact, judge differently than men and influence male judges, and that is in the case of sex discrimination. And they said, um, for these disputes, the probability of a judge deciding in favor of the party alleging discrimination decreases by about 10 percentage points when the judge is male. Likewise, when a woman serves on a panel with men, the men are significantly more likely to rule in favor of the rights litigant. So basically what they're saying is by, let's say, like a woman is going to court um, charging her employer of sex discrimination. They're saying based on um, their research that if a woman hears the case, she will, as a woman, be able to understand the um, prosecution's argument a little better than men would and might be able to broaden their perspective on the case and therefore make the uh, the woman more likely to to win her case of uh, sexual discrimination. So that's the conclusion that the paper called Untangling the Causal Effects of On Judging came to. Now, before that paper came out, I would say the main um, work that was cited in terms of whether male and female judges was different was by Carol Gilligan, who wrote a book called In a Different Voice. And she took that thing that Kristen was talking about where women will be more sympathetic to a case of sex discrimination Mm -hmm. and applied it to all law. She said basically that females and males have different moral reasoning. And as a result, women are always going to try and sympathize and uh, find, you know, common ground and be kind of all mushy feely, whereas men are going to look at the totality of circumstances, apply a law and want to apply it the same Every time. So that's where I think, you know, and a lot of people said this is a really damaging way to look at the difference between male and female judges is we obviously if you're going before a court, you want, you know, you want you want a fair judge. I want one standard. Yeah, I would want I would not want the judge to look at me as a man or a woman standing in front of him. I would want them to see me as, you know, simply a citizen who is presenting a case. And you don't want to get into the courtroom as the citizen presenting the case and go, man, oh, I got this man. He's going to be all tough. Well, and I think that the the important thing that this 2008 study um, illuminates is the fact that uh, they say that 
the results of this exercise are now reasonably clear. The presence of women in the federal appellate judiciary rarely has an empirical effect on judicial outcomes. I mean, it's not in the bag. If you go, if I go before a female judge, she's not necessarily going to rule in my favor just because, you know, she's sympathetic to women. Not at all. So then the question becomes, if women are as good as men, but if they're not really that different, then do you need more women? If we're all coming to the same conclusions, except in cases like sex discrimination, family disputes, reproductive rights, then why do you put more women on the bench? And that gets into something called social legitimacy. And by social legitimacy, I think which you mean the fact that since our population is, you know, more or less 50-50 male-female, is it really right to have uh, the standard bearers of the law be almost all male? Do we need that female voice in there to represent our actual societal makeup? And I think that even just looking at it beyond gender, you know, when uh, Sotomayor linked uh, Latina to um, her Latin heritage, to her femaleness, I think there's also the case we made that we need more of uh, racial diversity to reflect how that's changing in society as well. Because, you know, when Sandra Day O'Connor was on the court, she was very adamant about saying there's not any difference to this thing about gender. You really don't bring your own differences in rendering judgment. But then she would go on to say that um, the influence of Justice Thurgood, Thurgood Marshall had, did have an impact on the court when he would talk about how he had experienced racial discrimination that offered a window into the world for people who had not experienced racial discrimination. So basically the argument I think that Sotomayor makes is that, yes, we all do have different backgrounds and they will affect the cases that we see. Yeah, and there was this point about um, Sandra Day O'Connor uh, that said, like you said, she was one of she was a big detractor of this so-called different voice theory of judging, in that you know women will come to different decisions than men. And she has been clear in that quote: "There is simply no empirical evidence that gender differences lead to discernible differences in rendering judgment," which this 2008 paper does kind of agrees with, but also um, kind of points out that there is a slight flaw in that argument. But this uh, this article also says somewhat paradoxically. O'Connor does believe that the personal experiences of diverse jurists influence the view of their colleagues. But I don't know that that's really that paradoxical. I think it's just more of an accurate statement of saying that, you know, the personal experiences that judges bring with them to the courts, whether they're male or female, are going to influence their decision at some point. For instance, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was recently interviewed by New York Times Magazine, and the interviewer asked her about her thoughts on uh, whether or not, you know, she thought that um, it was these studies were positive finding, you know, looking into whether or not men and, and women make different judgments. And she re- replied, I'm very doubtful about those kind of results. I certainly know that there are women in federal courts with whom I disagree just as strongly as I disagree with any man. I guess I have some resistance to that kind of survey because it's what I was arguing in uh, the 70s, like in Mozart's opera Cosi Fontuti, that's the way women are. And she also points out that, you know, as um, with her own back, background being Jewish and growing up, I think, in what was it in New York, all of those little factors, you know, she went to she even says, like, I went to camp in the Adirondacks and, you know, 1950, whatever. She said all of those experiences I'm bringing with me to the court and are going to impact the way I decided it shouldn't come down to gender. Right. But I did think that in that interview, she made some interesting points about the challenges that women do face once they're on the court. You know, she was talking about how the men can get away with being very abrasive in their questioning. They interrupt each other. They make their points very forcefully, whereas one time she accidentally interrupted Sandra Day O'Connor 
and the headline was, you know, Rude Ruth Interrupts Sandra. So I do think that part of the problem in seeing women judges as equal to men on the bench is how our own media treats them, how we perceive it. I mean, you know, this comes down to the issue we have with a lot of podcasts, Kristen, is by calling out the differences ourselves, do we make it only harder for women to rise above it? Mm-hmm. And also, there as a, a kind of funny, in my opinion, side note to all of this, there was this one study done, um, and I think it was among South Carolina lawyers and judges that found, this was later picked up by other uh, outlets and was reported in uh, The Guardian, and it found that Women with more typically masculine names have more legal success, like if they are becoming lawyers, uh, like getting legal appointments, than uh, women with more typically feminine names. Interesting. Yeah. But, I mean, women in the law is a fairly new phenomenon. I I was reading that um, 1920, I think, was the first year all states allowed women to practice law. Mm -hmm. So we've come a very long way in a very short time. But as Ruth Bader Ginsburg also pointed out in that that Q&A with the New York Times Magazine, we still have a long way to go. She does find it um, very disheartening that there are still so few women on the Supreme Court bench. And she points to our, our northern neighbors in Canada, where the chief justice is a woman. And I think there are also, I believe, three other um, Canadian Supreme Court judges who are also women. And she thinks it would be great if uh, we had better representation like that. Not necessarily because women judge better. It's not like that. I mean, that's kind of hard to, to judge judging anyway, (laughs) but, um, simply for that social legitimacy point that you brought up earlier. Okay. So listeners, let us know what you think. Do you want to come up before a male judge or a female judge? Do you think there's any difference? Do you think the Supreme court looks balanced? Tell us your thoughts. Tell us your thoughts. All right, Kristen, let's do some listener mail. Okay. Um, these emails we're going to talk about are from our female circumcision episode. I'm going to read one uh, from a nameless person, it looks like. Uh, the person writes, I cannot believe how you guys presented the issue of female genital mutilation as if it's totally a cultural female choice. These women do not have a choice. This is something that is imposed on women whether they want to or not. Even the women that say they support this are inconsequential because it would be the law whether they agreed or not in the retarded culture they live in. I think we need to call out retarded beliefs and practices and not accept everything as a culturally relative issue. If I believe the world is flat and would be offended if told otherwise, that does not change the fact that the world is not flat. Please man up and stop with your we are all correct and all cultures are good attitude about everything. Please do not be so scared about being so politically correct that you will allow people to butcher women. I could not believe how you guys were so casually presenting this issue like it is a female choice. I was sickened to hear this podcast. Um, and this is just one email that we got that was a little bit unhappy with the way, well, not even just a little bit unhappy. A lot. Pretty unhappy with um, the way we presented the issue of female genital cutting. Um, a lot of people seem to think that we were somehow endorsing mm-hmm. the practice in the name of cultural sensitivity mm-hmm. and um, basically having a very uh, skewed perception of, uh, you know, what it actually is and basically using cultural relativism as, you know, a, a blanket excuse for allowing something like this to happen to three million girls. Mm-hmm. And so, um, obviously, you know, this is not, uh, female genital mutilation, female circumcision, female genital cutting, you know, all, all the different names for it is definitely not something that Molly and I would endorse at right. all. However, um, 
We did think that it was important to present the research that we found and to try to approach it in an unbiased way. So um, to give you kind of an idea of the, the official responses that we gave to these listeners, I will read my response to that last email. Okay. So I said, I hate to hear that you were sickened by the Female Circumcision Podcast. Molly and I certainly weren't trying to approach it lightly, but rather address both sides of the issue, because based on our research, there's more than one angle to the debate. Does that mean we agree with it? No. But we felt responsibility, especially with a cultural right completely unfamiliar to us, to take an unbiased approach. In regard to the issue of choice, that was a point raised by an anthropologist we referenced. Instead of three million girls per year being subjected to female genital mutilation, she advocated offering it as a choice to women once they've matured. Today, the initiation right is still commonly practiced, and offering it as a choice might be a positive step along the way to phasing it out altogether and addressing the gender inequity associated with it. While we do like to offer our opinions and experiences on topics, Molly and I also think it's crucial to present our listeners with research statistics and facts from experts and allow listeners to form their own opinions. Thank you for your criticism and taking the time to listen. And I think we got a lot of emails that basically said you girls are very good about being fair and balanced on a lot of topics, but this was one that didn't deserve to be fair and balanced. But I think that that we're always going to try and be fair and balanced with our topics, but that's why we have listener mails to hear from you guys about your own opinions. Yeah, and I think one one thing I pointed out to uh, to one of the listeners was um, I said that kind of in retrospect, I think maybe one of the reasons why we did spend a decent amount of time talking about this issue of um, female circumcision as choice was because I frankly was surprised to even see that research out there. Mm-hmm. And on the Tierney Lab blog on the New York Times where we first found it referenced uh, about presenting female circumcision as a choice uh, kind of reflected the same level of outrage. Mm-hmm. So... I don't know, but I, I think I still think that it was crucial for us to um, to talk about all sides of the issue instead of just immediately pointing to it and dismissing it as something barbaric and atrocious. And I think that even the research that was very much against um, female genital mutilation that was outraged by it points out that you can't just go into a culture and say that your beliefs are to put it as this one email did retarded, and you know. It sort of offended me that they would describe any culture belief as retarded in the first place. I don't think that's a very good word to use in relation to anyone's beliefs. But even getting away from that, um, I don't mind being called politically correct if I'm just trying to present all the sides of why people think something is and exists. Yeah. So if you guys have any more thoughts about it, please feel free to email us. We appreciate um, hearing from you, whether it is with praise or with criticism. Exactly. So uh, write us at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And as usual, if you want to keep up with us during the week, you can head over to our blog. It's called How To Stuff. And you can find that and a host of other articles on howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Want more How Stuff Works? Check out our blogs on the howstuffworks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?